Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We're often critical of how we look at current events without the full context of history. It's a criticism often leveled at the young, and it's a criticism that's often justified. However, sometimes the opposite is true. We know too much about history, to the point where we look at sui generis events today through the lens of our lived or historical experience, which may actually prevent us from seeing, reacting to, and acting upon events in their own context. Not because of something that happened, but because of something that happened before. When looking at the world of the CIA, spycraft, and espionage, it's fair to say that the images of both World War II and particularly the Cold War shape our vision. Is this helpful? Does it allow us to understand, better or worse, the world of 21st century covert action and government secrecy? Joining me to explore this is my guest, David Ignatius. As he has done in nine previous CIA novels, Washington Post Global Affairs columnist David Ignatius takes us inside the world of the modern-day CIA and contemporary spycraft. It is my pleasure to welcome Washington Post columnist David Ignatius back to this program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit about this sense that we all have of of spycraft, and most of it sort of grew up during the Cold War, and how that gives us a, a sort of particular set of notions as we think about spies and the CIA and espionage today. Well, I think the models are are so uh, powerful. Um, We all grew up um, reading the John le Carré novels, uh, the the classic uh, Cold War battle between uh, Soviet intelligence, Karla, the Russian spy master, Moscow center. Uh, We imagine this uh, the ballet played out. Uh, they remember in the Lacrae novels, they talk about the pavement artists who are, are uh, doing surveillance. And it became clear to me a few novels ago, this, as you said, is my 10th, that all of the traditional themes of espionage and the spy novel had gone digital, that, that, that all, all the things a spy agency does try to penetrate the adversary, try to manipulate and deceive, try to use covert action to uh, disable the adversary. Those were all now a matter of digital technology. It, 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 recruiting as your mole, the head of another intelligence service, as in a Lecrae novel, made less sense than recruiting the systems administrator who ran uh, the, the the basic networks. You'd get access to all the secrets without having all the fuss of having to, to recruit the top guys. So that's the world that we live in. Uh, I try to write realistic spy novels, and so I, I began to, to take my fiction into these issues that the people who do the technical side of, of the intelligence business as the third novel in which that's been my focus. Mm-hmm. How does this digital world and the way spycraft plays out in this world sort of reflect, if it does at all, the kind of moral twilight that was part of how we saw spycraft and human intelligence during the Cold War? Well, in, in part because of writers like uh, John le Carre, we did tend to see intelligence as a, a world of gray. I don't think it was quite as gray as some of the novels suggest. I mean, the Soviet Union, in my judgment, was a, it was an evil empire. It was a repressive d- dictatorship. It kept 
nationalities in Eastern Europe under uh, basically a, a iron fist. Uh, you know, there were good guys, um, uh, or at least there were certainly bad guys. Whether we were always the good guys is a more complicated question. But I think the world that we're living in now um, is, is is infinitely complicated in, in part because the, the information space that we all, all live in uh, is is now a domain of war and certainly of, of spy wars. Um, the, the, there is a now a constant low-level war going on. Uh, it's not a not a full shooting war, but going on in cyberspace. We saw that in our 2016 presidential election, documented in great detail in the Mueller report. The Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee just reaffirmed that that, that uh, Russian activity was um, malicious, intense. So that that's the terrain in which we now conduct our politics. Our business life is, I think, similarly vulnerable to manipulation. Uh, and, and there's a whole new chapter that's just about to start, and that's really the subject of, of my new novel, The Paladin. We're going to move from, from fake news, which was really what the 2016 Russian operations were about, to fake events, to video and sound imagery that can be created by computers that is uh, so exquisitely uh, uh, packaged that it, it's almost impossible to, to detect. And I think that is going to present, you know, for intelligence agencies, how do we know that something is true? How, how do we, information that we get, how do we analyze it, tell the president, tell policymakers uh, what to do if we're not sure about, about its providence, about whether it's really true. Talk about the skill set, then, that espionage and those that practice it, people in the CIA, have to bring to their work. Talk about it in the context of Michael Dunn, who is at the center of your story. So Michael Dunn is uh, one of those blue-collar CIA guys. He's a, he's a tech. He um, is not a, one of the fancy case officers who ends up being a station chief. He's the guy who you know, creates and then plants the bugs, the microphones, all the, the devices of spycraft. Uh, and Michael Dunn is a loyal uh, servant of the agency. In the beginning of the book, he is uh, ordered to, to do, asked to do something, I should say, because he's not specifically ordered, that he suspects may be illegal, but he does it anyway, because that's the kind of loyal officer he is and over the course of the book he gets caught he gets indicted uh, convicted sent to prison he's hung out to dry by his colleagues in the agency for reasons he doesn't understand so he you know he's a uh, a foot soldier in this in this war a victim of it in, in ways that the book uh, unravels as, uh, for the reader uh, I think uh, we don't value the uh, men and women who are CIA or FBI officers uh, on the ground uh, as much as we should. We, the, the, these, we, every time we see a soldier in uniform uh, in a public place, people thank and thank you for your service. Sometimes people just burst into applause when we go to a ball game. We don't have that same feeling for intelligence officers like, like the hero of this novel. And we are. I mean, they and 
diplomats uh, risking their lives in really nasty places. But uh, it's just not our, our instinct to, to feel that they're, uh, to thank them for their service. Of course, some of that comes out of the fact that they have to operate in the shadows most of the time. They do, uh, and they should. Uh, this, this is a, a secret service. But I, I, I think, you know, I hear in the critiques uh, of President Trump about the deep state. Uh, I hear in the critiques uh, of, of liberals similarly about, about uh, you know, CIA rogue operations. Uh, a fundamental mistrust. Uh, you can understand why when you look at the history of the CIA. They've, they've made a lot of mistakes. But I, I've said often in my columns, uh, Jeff, that we're going to end up with the intelligence service that we deserve if we um, don't make people feel that they're doing a job that's valued, that the country respects them, stands behind them. You know, over time, I think the, the performance of the of the intelligence agencies will decline. I've seen that, to be honest, in the Arafat and Thames spy novels. Each of them is a snapshot of where the CIA is. And I've seen some diminution of their operational capabilities, self-confidence, performance. What changed, if anything, in the post-9-11 era in terms of how we see the CIA with respect to the kinds of things you're talking about, David? Well, I think the, the most important thing that happened is that the CIA was transformed from uh, an espionage organization trying to identify and then steal secrets that keep us alive to a, a counterterrorism organization. It was given the mission of tracking down al-Qaeda. It ended up using what I think we now all are just horrified by the, the torture methods like waterboarding because the country was frightened and people wanted wanted to know was there, were there going to be dirty bombs on our subways. The CIA officers were told that the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel had authorized them to do certain things. I think as we look back, we, we would say they should have said no anyway. But they were told that it's okay, it's legal. And, and they became a killing machine uh, from the air. The drone programs to shoot, shoot down uh, al-Qaeda terrorists in the Fatah, the tribal areas of Pakistan, were CIA operations. So they, uh, again, did what presidents asked them to do and what, what the country felt it, I think it felt it wanted. Um, they ended up being a very different organization, way lopsided on the counterterrorism side, as we it's happened in the military too. For the CIA, I think this really is a time to go back to basics, to go back to focusing on the secrets that we need to know. I'd love to see a much smaller CIA that, that didn't worry about every issue around the globe, but worried about the things that actually are, are dangerous to the country. Like CIA just, just it's so big and bureaucratic, it, it sometimes gets in its own way. But the, your, your basic question, how did it change after 9-11? It changed a lot. And as the terrorism, counterterrorism problem recedes, as I think it, it has, um, I hope they'll get back to basics. 
One of the other things that you deal with in, in the Paladin is this nexus with respect to, to journalism, to journalists, and it, it circles back to what you were talking about before in terms of, of this, these deep fakes that, that might be part of the future. So my hero, Michael Dunn, is assigned by the, the director of operations to penetrate a nominally journalistic organization based in Europe run by an American that is uh, doing exotic and increasingly manipulative things in the information space. And the CIA uh, operations director wants to get inside of it. Uh, Is it a journalistic organization? It's like the question we face with WikiLeaks. Is 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 that like a newspaper? Um, in the case of, of my novel, the organization that Dunn is penetrating is called Fallen Empire. Uh, is a, a step or two beyond anything WikiLeaks would ever do. I mean, WikiLeaks, to my knowledge, doesn't publish uh, false information. It publishes things people might wish that they didn't put out Hillary Clinton's emails or other things that they're provided to them by the Russians or this one or that one. But but they're not but they're not fakes. In the case of Fallen Empire, they have advanced the technology of uh, of information uh, and information manipulation to the point that that they're 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 putting out almost undetectable false information, uh, video of an oil spill from a tanker that never happened that's been concocted in a, in a studio, similar uh, inflammatory things. Uh, the, the person who's running this organization be, begins the book as a kind of idealistic uh, young man. He imagines himself as a social bandit uh, plaguing the rich corporations and powerful people on behalf of uh, the ordinary folks. He, he comes to, to believe that that mission is fundamentally misguided. He's being manipulated by others, and so he ends up as he realizes he destroyed the life of Michael Dunn, the CIA officer who was sent uh, to penetrate his organization, it feels a deep sense of regret. And again, that's one of the engines that, that drives the drives the book forward is his understanding that what he was doing, or he called it journalism, was not was 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 manipulative and wrong. Talk about the dangers that are inherent in journalism getting caught up. In, in this kind of, of warfare, essentially, the, this deep fake warfare and, and the way in which it's so easy for it to be misrepresented and for journalists to be taken in by it sometimes, even well-meaning and hardworking. So we have to be suspicious of every piece of information, uh, in quotation marks, that, that comes our way. That's always been been true. Everything comes as, as a reporter with some spin on it. We need to understand what, what it is. Uh, in the current situation where information that's shown to you, uh, tape that's played for you, could be fabricated, we need to be more in the habit of, as, as I would put it, interrogating the facts. How do we know something is true? How do we know a, a certain fact how did, it, how did it arise? What's its, what's its origin story? What other facts, in quotation marks, is it hung around with? And I, I think journalists have to do this. We, you know, at the Washington Post, have a feature now that's 
um, one of the most important things we do called the fact checker, where Glenn Kessler, my colleague, awards uh, four Pinocchios. If, if, this, if it's a real whopper, you get four Pinocchios. A lot of news organizations are now realize they're in the fact-checking business. The CIA is thinking a lot about how it's going to be sure that the information that it gets from all of its uh, sources and sensors is real. How does it, how does it check? What are the forensics of, of fact-checking for an intelligence agency? And I guess I, I'd say, most of all, uh, we as, as consumers of information uh, need to really work hard to make sure that, that what we're getting uh, is, is true. I mean, people just need to be more conscious of the possibility that their information ecosystem has been polluted. Some people don't seem to care. They seem to kind of like being in the club and, you know, uh, beating the drum and, uh, seeing information as a weapon, Infowars, it's one of the right-wing uh, groups, but seeing information as a weapon in a larger, larger war, I, I think that's just super dangerous, and people need to need to exercise good information hygiene, if you will, to keep keep that flow uh, pure. And I'll just say one more thing, Jeff. That, so. In a world where it's so easy to, to create false information and, and manipulate people, the value of ha- having true information is going to increase. People will pay more money to, to have information that they have confidence is accurate. I mean, if you're a, a financial trader or have any kind of business, you need to know that the information you're making decisions on is right. That has been manipulated, cooked by your competitors or by other people. So you'll pay a lot to be sure that it's accurate. You'll, the people who you trust to provide you information that's reliable uh, will, will over time, I think, um, get stronger. I hope so. And that's one way out. It's just basic market incentive. The, the, the desire for, for good information will, will drive out the purveyors of lies. Have you seen any evidence that the leaders of intelligence agencies today, be they the CIA or any of the other intelligence agencies, that the leadership, many of whom came up in another era, really understand the scope of what we're talking about today? You know, it kind of reminds me of when some of the Silicon Valley executives went before a Senate and House committee not too long ago, and the questions clearly reflected people that didn't understand what was happening in the world of technology. So it's a great question, and I'm I'm not 100% sure of the answer. I know that there are some senior officers at the CIA and in the military who who get it, who were uh, technologically sophisticated, wouldn't ask the questions you heard the the congressional committee members uh, asking Zuckerberg and others. Uh, Do they have the power to drive us in the right direction toward, um, you know, better, um, uh, you know, better AI systems, better uh, information management, a better focus on cybersecurity at the cost maybe of, uh, having fewer aircraft carriers, having less exquisite fighter jets, because uh, you know you gotta get the money for the information and and cyber 
operations from somewhere. That, that I'm, I'm, I'm less sure of. Uh, I'm actually writing a column today about this dilemma uh, uh, as, it, as it's going to face um, Congress and, and Pentagon planners. But, but there are people certainly who get it. The CIA created a new director to digital innovation, which was run by some very sophisticated people who you know, would uh, give anybody in Silicon Valley a, a run for their money. The, the problem is that they're just, these are bureaucracies. And worse, they're secret bureaucracies. And so all the inertia that you see in any bureaucracy, people want to keep doing what they know how to do, what they did yesterday, is compounded, I think, in the secret world. And sometimes they get stuck. And that's one reason it's fun to write a novel about these issues, because you think maybe it's just going to poke a, a stick. Um, so people say, hey, this really does matter. We, hey, we ought to think about this more. The other danger, I suppose, is that because the barriers to entry, like so many other areas of technology, because the barriers to entry are lower and less expensive in many cases, that that in, in a globalized world, the danger of enemies having access to so much of this is, is so much greater than it was in, in other areas of, of and other eras, I should say, of spycraft and intelligence. Hacking talents are, are you know, r- pretty randomly distributed around the world. You've got smart hackers in Iran, North Korea, it turns out, uh, certainly in China, uh, all over the world. Uh, the young kids who love to, you know, play with uh, computers, write code, or, are learning how to, how to do these things. And the tools, amazingly, frighteningly, have, have been disseminated on the, on the Internet. You remember the, the days when even the simplest outline of how to make a nuclear weapon was the progressive magazine was brought to court to prevent it from, from publishing that. These days, stuff, uh, the, the most sophisticated tools for penetrating computer systems, taking down the electrical grid, you know, go, go down a list, those are all out on the Internet. You, you, can, you can buy the rootkit access tools uh, uh, easily. Uh, and so I, I think uh, the, the adversary um, has these weapons available. Attribution, knowing who's doing something to you is obviously very difficult. Uh, the one thing that I am certain of is that the CIA uh, is working very hard to think about how to um, how to evaluate, test information uh, so that they know its reliability. DARPA, the Defense uh, Advanced uh, Research Agency, has, uh, has had a project for several years in what they call media forensics, which is to develop techniques so that Facebook or Google or the government has a better uh, chance of detecting something that's a deliberate fake uh, before it poisons, poisons the well. And where does human intelligence fit into the equation today? Well, uh, the, the problem, I think, is is speed. Human intelligence has a subtlety, uh, we would say, intuition. Computers still, even the most uh, advanced uh, AI systems, have trouble, uh, you know, telling a joke or, or getting a joke. Right? I mean... Uh, irony, uh, all the subtle things that human beings do that help us make judgments, help us evaluate people. Um, the, the AI is still some distance from, from being able to do that. 
the, the problem is that um, these AI systems, autonomous weapon systems driven by AI, move at speeds that it's really um, increasingly impossible for humans to be in that decision loop. So, you know, we now have hypersonic weapons that go at many times the speed of sound that can vary their course uh, as they as they travel. The response to those weapons, you know, deciding what to do, how to shoot them down, how to, I fear those are going to have to be made by AI algorithms because there's just not time for a human being to get in the decision loop. And um, there's a lot of thinking going on uh, at the Pentagon. They're trying to draw in the, the smartest people in Silicon Valley to think about so what are ethical AI rules? Because we're going to have to, human beings are going to have to be in the design because they may not be in the actual loop, but they have to be in the design. They have to think, you know, what are they going to be the algorithmic rules that, that, that decide how these systems act? Um, uh, the, all of the leading universities in computer science last year met with a team from the Pentagon that was organized by Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, to try to think about ethical AI. So I think that's, um, I think one, just to close out this idea, one thing that I really hope uh, people in the technology world of Silicon Valley and you know maybe have their country places in Napa Valley where you are, one thing I think they'll hope hope they'll try to do is help the government. We we need our best minds thinking about problems of intelligence, of defense, uh, you know, to uh, avoid uh, the kind of, of conflict with China where China has its best brains mobilized to, to limit our influence or hurt us, and we just don't have our best brains because they said, uh-uh, I don't want to work with the U.S. government. That, that's, um, that, that would really should it worries me. I think it should, should concern everybody. And of course, the overlay to that in, in the few minutes that we have left is the, the danger and the degree to which all of this has become politicized today and how it makes it all so much more difficult when, as you've pointed out, it's already difficult already. Well, uh, somehow we need to come out of this, this period of, of uh, COVID-19 COVID uh, lockdown um, with some new ideas about how to structure things. Uh, a couple of are obvious to me. Um, you know, we need better hygiene in every way, in how we interact face to face, but how we interact with, with information. We need better information hygiene so we know what's coming to us is clean. We need to come out of this period um, valuing the experts who are going to keep us safe, the epidemiologists who tell us uh, who's sick and how's it spreading, the, the laboratory scientists who are going to design the vaccines and therapies that will help us really mark an end to this. And the, the, if, if we're not smart enough as a country to get those basics uh, after this period that, that we're living through, but then I'd really, I'd really worry. I pray that that's not so. I can't imagine that people would be so short-sighted they wouldn't say, Oh, I really learned, you know, you could, I mean, I like the elite, those guys, but I, we sure need smart scientists. If, if that doesn't happen, uh, we have a long-term problem. I don't know how you solve it. David Ignatius, his 10th CIA thriller just out is The Paladin. 
David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Great conversation. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.